Hey, back at it again with Securiosity. But before we get started, FedScoop presents DC Cloud Week. DC Cloud Week is coming up in about three weeks. And if you haven't heard about it yet, uh, you clearly haven't been listening to us. So we're <laughs> going to tell you about it again. Uh, DC Cloud Week, citywide festival bringing together thousands of government and tech leaders from around the nation to share how the cloud is transforming government, academia, nonprofits, and the private sector. The week-long festival consists of events like community conferences, events, and parties, and it's anchored by Fed Talks, the largest annual gathering of the top 1,000 C-level leaders from the GovTech community. We've been working on the calendar of events over the past couple weeks, and it is filling out quite nicely. So go on over to dccloudweek.com, sign up for some events. And this goes beyond just the cybersecurity aspect. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's cybersecurity events going on, but we're talking about AI, we're talking about machine learning, we're talking about app development, we're talking about all different types of tech stuff that has to do with the cloud. Obviously, tech's not powered without the cloud, so let's get together and talk about it for a week. For more information, check out dccloudweek.com. Let's go. Welcome to Securiosity for May 10th. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel, ready to bring you the world's best weekly wrap-up of InfoSec News. This week was an astoundingly busy one, even by InfoSec News standards. So get ready for a month's worth of news condensed to about 45 minutes. We're going to do something a little different for this week's interview. We're going to go in-depth with CyberScoop's Jeff Stone on the reporting he's done on ad fraud, including a story he dropped Friday morning, which looks at how botnets power the entire ecosystem. Some really, really interesting stuff there, uh, along with all of the stunners and surprises that came this week. So let's get right to it. Israel Defense Forces announced Sunday it launched airstrikes on a building allegedly housing a number of Hasmas soldiers that were preparing to launch a cyber attack against Israel. The incident marks the first time a government has publicly announced it has immediately responded to a cyber attack by launching a kinetic attack, a military term that describes the use of lethal force. Although this marks a first in cyber warfare, it has not been out of question. In 2015, the Obama administration said that the U.S. would, in theory, use all necessary means, including military, to respond to a cyber attack on the nation. The fact that IDF was compelled to respond in that physical realm does not necessarily show Hamas cyber threat is becoming more powerful or dangerous. The IDF did not detail the alleged cyber attack and other offensive capabilities Hamas was developing. Greg, have we crossed a Rubicon here? I don't know that we've necessarily crossed it in terms of seeing this happen again and again. I mean, I could go either way on this. Um... Look, we're talking about uh, Israel versus Palestine here. So there's always going to be like five levels above any other military conflict when it comes to the tension that rockets get fired all the time for this type of stuff. So when it comes to cyber attacks in in this realm, I'm not surprised that it ended in what, again, is described as a kinetic attack. Have we seen um, the kinetic attacks not publicly announced by the well, government? Well, so there was the only thing that has come close to this over the past three or four years was that the U.S. dropped a drone strike on a gentleman. Um, the la- His last name is Hussein. I, I forget his first name. He was like the leader of ISIS's cyber wing, oh, and he okay. had been he had been pushing propaganda for a number of years. So he was on a target list, and we eventually decided that enough was enough, and we launched a drone strike, and it killed him. Got it. Um, but that even wasn't a immediate response. Like that took a couple years to build up. We went through the, the usual. Um, you know, military kill chain right. um, in order to have that attack launch. This was like, okay, this was a direct response. Uh, if we take everything at face value, IDF got word there was a cyber attack being launched out of this building. And once they got word of that, they turned around and went rocket that building right now and boom. So it actually launched, the rocket actually launched before um, the cyber attack did? Right. The, okay. There was... N- no evidence from IDF, at least, that a cyber attack was launched and caused any sort of of damage, whether it was a loss of data or or it was part of any sort of attack that Hamas launched that dropped um, 
a bomb or, or anything like that. There didn't seem to be any loss of life from this cyber attack that was reportedly being planned. That's, that's interesting. But, I wonder if it'll happen again. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see it happen in this conflict again. But at the same time, I don't think that this is necessarily going to dictate some type of norm in the greater military realm. Like, okay. I, I don't think that you're necessarily going to see... Um, uh, I, I don't know, like North Korea launch a cyber attack and within 24 hours we turn around and drop a missile, you know, somewhere in North Korea. I, I mean, there are a number of reasons why we hope that that or why we probably think that that's a bad idea from a military standpoint. Sure. But it, let's just say uh, in a vacuum, I, I don't think that you're necessarily going to see the U.S. go, oh, okay, well, Israel did it. The, the cat's out of the bag. Uh, now we're just any anytime somebody tries to hit our military with some malware, we're we're dropping a bomb or sending a drone somewhere to take that out. I don't think you're necessarily going to start to see that. I mean, I think that I mean, I, I, I think it's warranted for things like taking down the power grid, like that kind of thing. Right. That's what you were talking about with what Obama said in 2015 was that, no, we do have a red line. Like if it yeah. gets to a point where it escalates, where, yeah, if you take down a section of the power grid in that's uh, America, yeah, yeah, that's a problem enough to warrant probably a kinetic attack where there's going to be uh, some missiles dropped or some drones pointed in your direction. But if it's just a cyber attack, I mean, we see problems with the DOD and and sort of small level mili- uh, small level cyber attacks all the time, and they don't end up with a hole in the ground somewhere. So and, yeah, I mean, do we know any details about the cyber attack that was going to launch? I mean, how c- critical was it? No, and so it's funny that you bring that up because we had some reporters here at CyberScoop ask IDF about that. Like, can you have some details put out so we can get a yeah. better grip on the capabilities just for the greater good. And they were like, no, we're not going to do that. We just have our evidence and this is, um, you know, this is how we reacted to it, which has led some people to believe that there was a, I, I hate using this term because the conspiracy theorists come out, but for lack of a better term, somewhat of a false flag that it was, was there really a cyber attack going on here or was this just something used to mask? The, the the real intent that we were going to drop a bomb here anyway. Anyway, yeah, so, interesting. Um, yeah, there, there has been no evidence put forth that... It should be nice to know how was, serious right, it was. Yeah, that there were any indicators of, yeah. of compromise or, or there was any sort of custom code. And uh, that code... Uh, was blown out of the building too, along with the actual brick and mortar parts of the building. So um, any sort of actual cyber attack that was going to happen, it got who knows, it, yeah, it jet, yeah, just reduced so to, reduced to rubbish. Yeah. So um, yeah, uh, in uh, U.S. military uh, side of things, U.S. Cyber Command has revealed it's still working overseas with allies to try to prevent election interference, according to Brigadier General Timothy Hall who is Cyber Command's Cyber National Mission Force Commander. Lots of commanders there. Um, These kinds of engagements began in 2018 as part of the military's operation to defend the U.S. midterm elections, an operation known inside the Pentagon as Synthetic Theology. Then uh, what happened there was Cyber Command sent warriors to Ukraine, North Macedonia, and Montenegro. And although military commanders wouldn't say this time where Cyber Command is operating now, they did say these deployments will only grow. Jen, did you think that Cyber Command officers were even deployed? I had no idea. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. That's the conversation that happened when we published the story. It was like, wait, we're deploying these troops? Like... The internet is the internet. Like uh, I can access the same internet from, you know, Fort Meade or or Fort Belvoir or Fort Gordon or any one of the forts that cares about cyber. Pretty sure that I can access the same internet that I could if I was going to Ukraine or North Macedonia or any of these unhidden spots that they uh, won't reveal to us. So I'm I'm really interested to see what the strategy is there on, on on the ground because I don't, like, the internet connection is the same no matter what as long as you can get to the internet. Well, and, you know, I've, I've had um, friends of the years um, sort of talk about, you know, obviously no details, but they were going on a mission. And I've always thought they were, like, red team NSA guys, right? So I always thought that was an interesting um comment i always kind of wondered what that meant so apparently it means they got deployed somewhere for a short amount of time yeah so uh what that leads me to believe is that 
Cyber Command is still partly looked upon and relied upon as a support command almost. So they're helping elite level. Yeah, yeah, they're helping set something up. They're they're helping like the same way that like the NGA helps with like the mapping for the military. The the NSA and Cyber Command is helping whatever branch of the military is out on a mission out in the world yeah. doing support stuff, whether it's just tech support. I mean, I, I hope it goes further than tech support because the the men and women that are part of Cyber Command are obviously a lot more talented than, than just support, being able sure. to, to set up some, some networks and make sure that the tech works. But um, yeah, I, 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 I don't know what else they could be doing if it's not support that they wouldn't be able to do from Fort Meade or Fort Gordon or wherever else. So really, really interesting story there. That, Maybe someone uh, will write a book. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> who knows? So the top official responsible for certifying voting systems at the Federal Election Assistance Commission is stepping down. The departure of Ryan Macias, the EAC's acting director of testing certification, comes as the commission prepares for the 2020 election and continues to mull an important update to voting system security guidelines. The departure leaves just one person overseeing the commission's testing efforts. This isn't great, is it? I mean, (laughs) one person? No. Uh, One person to be the federal watchdog when it comes to all of the voting hardware and the voting systems isn't particularly great. I mean, again, we, we've talked about this before. It's really up to the, the states and how the states want to test the the veracity and, and the cybersecurity behind these systems. But at the same time, the Election Assistance Commission has been, you know, on the radar more so now than ever. And to have one person there, it's just, it's not great. And we've gotten word that this person has now been put into, like, the director of the entire program, which at the same time, I, I can't imagine that staff is very big because the staff at the AAC just isn't very big at all. But, uh, I mean, look, we, we've talked about the stories. We, we just had this big story about all of the changes that have gone down at the big voting companies and the experts <laughs> saying that that really isn't what needs to be done. And, okay, well, now there's no, like, middleman government-wide that can help out. Like, look, I, I don't like bureaucracy any more than anybody else does, but there needs to be a little bit more here than just one person on the federal side to say, hey, is everybody following these standards? I mean, it's it's still a little insane to me that we, we do this on a sort of a state level and not all states are, are sort of handled the same way. Because um, it's not fair, right? I mean, it gives advantage to, right. you know, certain voters just by based on whether or not the General Assembly in that state is smart enough about these issues to right. do something correctly. Right. And it's not even on the state. Sometimes it's on the city level. There's a really interesting story that was put out over the past, like, week or two that Los Angeles, the city itself, actually built their own custom voting machines up to all of the cybersecurity standards that we've all been talking about and hearing about over the past, um, I don't know, what, two, three years. Mm -hmm. But not only from a cybersecurity standpoint, but from like an election auditing standpoint. Like there is an embrace of the technology while also allowing for uh, paper ballots to be counted and used in audits. And I think it's fascinating that the city of Los Angeles just was like, okay, we don't have time to try to figure out how everybody else is going to do this in terms of the commercial companies and the federal level. Like, you guys can go argue. We're just going to go build this and sort of figure it out on our own. And they're starting to roll out their own custom machines. Now, Los Angeles is one of, if not the biggest voting precinct or, like, for lack of a better term, not not precinct, but I think Los Angeles has the biggest voter base when it comes to the jurisdictions that are sure, overseen. Yeah. So I don't think you're ever going to see each jurisdiction in the country build their own voting machine. But it's interesting enough to see that if you have the resources, you might be able to cut the commercial side out altogether because the commercial side isn't helping out. The federal government isn't necessarily helping out, as we can see with what's going on with the Elections Assistance Commission. So it's really, really interesting that one city has just been like, we're just going to do this on our own. Everybody can go argue, but 
we'll 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 take care of it from here. Well, good for them, but it needs to get deployed in every right. It, it is definitely state. it is definitely a model that needs to be followed where yeah. the dollars can support that. So the Department of Justice announced charges against two Israeli men accused of operating Deep.Web, a site that helped people find places to illegally buy drugs on the dark web. The website, which has been seized now by law enforcement, reaped more than $15 million in illegal proceeds since 2013. The two men, Tal Perhar and Michael Fahn, have been charged with illegally running a scheme that earned commissions whenever Deep.Web visitors subsequently made purchases on dark web markets. Police last week announced the closure of Wall Street Market, until now the second most popular site of its kind. So the dark web markets are getting rolled up. But Jen, this is a hell of a way to run a digital media startup. (laughs) It's kind of awesome. But I mean, what did they really um, do wrong here? They got some commission on some drug sales that they didn't sell or buy. Right. It, this is something that happens more and more with in the digital media space where it's affiliate marketing, right. where you're talking about a product, you're reading about a product, let's say the Google Pixel or something like that. And if you want to get a, a Google Pixel, there's a link that will direct you to Amazon or Verizon or whatever. And if you make a purchase from there, uh, you get, a, a, for lack of a better term, which is a kickback. I mean, that's all legal and, and fine. And that's a way that sure. a lot of digital yeah. media startups make a lot of money. I think where they went wrong is that instead of <laughs> affiliate links out to Amazon, they were affiliate links out to like Dream Market and Wall Street Market. And instead of buying a phone, they were buying fentanyl, which uh, that entire process, the government obviously frowns upon. So I think that is what brought them down. But so I think from a legal standpoint, I think that that falls under conspiracy almost because you're profiting from the the sale of drugs and you're helping facilitate illegal drug sales. So the the government is going to be like, oh, no, we're going to pop you for this. But that's, I mean, to me, that's just a little little bit more gray than I bought or sold. Um, But okay. Yeah. um, Look, again, it... it, (laughs) The, the entire drug war, I feel like, has, uh, while it has also been on the dealers themselves, it has tried to root out the whole system. And well, ever- and it should all get it, down, right. for sure. And as all of it has moved online, it's just a byproduct of, okay, well, it's not the physical system that we see going on. It's all based online, but we're still, from a legal standpoint, going to go on and tried to dismantle that whole thing. Um, I mean, for sure should be shut down. I mean, there's no question about yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, if you're – if fentanyl and heroin sales online, probably bad. <laughs> probably Not as bad probably as trying – probably bad yeah. bad. Yeah, as, you know, as bad as, you know, going out in the wild to try to buy, uh, you know, a hot bag. But um, I'm – not surprised this happened, but it's funny that you bring that up because a lot of people have been we like, just, "Wait, wait, wait!" Before you say, "Hot bag," is that a, a thing? That's that. I, that's, or did you just make that? No, no, no. That's uh, <laughs> that's heroin. I believe it's heroin slang. I watch The Wire a lot, okay. so that's um, that's where I pulled that from. <laughs> um, no, the uh, but it's funny the point that you bring up. A lot of people have said this was just affiliate marketing like that's not really a scam and it's like well okay i get that but again it goes back to the drugs if you're <laughs> affiliate marketing to fentanyl is probably going to get you uh arrested 100 times out of 100 i mean that's fair it's just eh. so a hacking group with ties to chinese intelligence has been using tools linked to the nsa as far back as march 2016 according to bombshell research from security firm Symantec. The tools include some released by the Shadow Brokers, a mysterious group that dumped computer exploits once used by the NSA on the open internet in April 2017. Semantics research suggests that the Chinese link group, which the company calls Buckeye, was using the same NSA link tools at least a year before they were made publicly available. Semantics says there's a possibility that Buckeye may have developed its own version of the tools after possibly observing an equation group attack and reverse engineering the malware caught by monitoring network traffic. Greg, what's the NSA doing here? So I think that this is a byproduct of the NSA just deploying tools. Um, 
It was really, really interesting. This story initially dropped in the New York Times on Monday night, and the way that the New York Times framed it got a lot of people up in arms because they framed it as the NSA is wild and loose with their hacking tools, and they keep dropping out on the open web for not only anybody to use, but for our adversaries. And that's not exactly what the research said. The research was more in line with, okay, let's talk about the ways that this Chinese group might have gotten their hands on it. They didn't, this wasn't like a shadow brokers thing where where somebody might have just, you know, found NSA tools and, and gave it to a nation state adversary for them to, you know, kind of stick their finger in the eye of five eyes. Um, this was something that is just like part and parcel and part of the risk profile of using these tools. Sometimes when you use these tools, other talented hackers that work for uh, nation states that are adversaries are smart enough to see them out there and are smart enough to reverse engineer them on their own and then use them for their own purposes. Um, Dave Itell, who uh, is with uh, Sixterra, I believe he's the chief security officer for Sixterra, um, former NSA guy, um, wrote a really, really interesting blog post this week uh, just basically saying that. Like it was, look, these are the risks of nation state level hacking. We're going to develop tools and they're going to be put out there and there's going to be smart people that are going to witness this and then build the tools on their own. That's sort of the risk of what we're all doing here. This happens and it's going to continue to happen and that's just like the game. That's just what this is. So um, what the NSA is doing here, there are people in the NSA that are fully aware that this is the risk of developing these tools, but they're they're not going to stop developing these tools. Like it's not just going to shut down by, you know, saying, oh, oh, well, well, the risk is that China or Russia might do this too. Well, yeah, China and Russia might build tanks or build drones or that, that doesn't stop the U.S. military from carrying out its missions. So – it, 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 what the NSA is doing here is just, I mean, they're carrying on their business, but it, it's part of the risk. And I'm sure that there are a ton of people at the NSA that are well aware of that risk and are just like, yeah. And I'm sure they're developing new tools. Yeah. And they're going to develop new tools. And it, it, it's the rat race. That's what this really is when it comes to nation state yeah. hacking. It's it's building out these capabilities and trying to use them to support the military mission and trying to do it before the, the enemy uses it. And, and I imagine we're doing the same thing. We're reverse engineering things that other nation states put out. Right. Exactly. Uh, that's, that is just, this is the ecosystem yeah. that we're all dealing with. It, what it does not mean though, is that the, the military or the NSA is like negligent, at least in this regard. Shadow brokers is an entirely different story. <laughs> that, that yeah. is something that that's, that's mm. an entirely different conversation. But with this, this was just, you know, this was part of the risk in developing these weapons. And like Dave Itell said, it happens. Interesting. So back to the dark web, all of these exploits and drug bazaars on the dark web may not be as big of a threat in volume as you think. Despite a years-long drumbeat of headlines and high-profile arrests implying there's an abundance of criminal masterminds lurking in the hidden corners of the internet, the reality is that the number of sites makes up less than 0.005% of the number of web pages on the open internet. According to new research from Recorded Future, researchers found that 55,828 different onion domains are out there and only about 8,400 of them are active and Though it's not clear how many of them are actually used for criminal activity, one recorded future researcher told us that the number is roughly about 100. So law enforcement and privacy security teams are looking on many of these forums, and the population of these marketplaces is just not as big as everybody thinks. So, Jen, that number of 100 dark web marketplaces, is that higher or lower than what you would have estimated? Um, you know, honestly, I didn't actually think it was going to be any higher than that. Um, I actually thought it was a small number. I just closely held that moved weapons and drugs and whatever else um, people do. Um, it doesn't seem like the number would be that much higher just because how many people are really, truly innovative enough, smart enough to sort of be the Amazon of bad stuff. Right. Uh, and I, what I think is really interesting, too, is that I would not be surprised if that number decreases because... Think about how much of the stuff is actually on the clear and open 
internet. Like, why would you have to go to the dark web to get access to a lot of this stuff? Like, it's almost yeah. like the dark web is a, a criminal marketing haven where it's like, no, you have to come to the dark web if you want this stuff because you, I, I only have the best data or the best drugs or the, the the cleanest weapons, and you have to come to me on the dark web in order to give me your money when you can do any of this stuff on the clear and, right. and open well, web anyway. And, and marijuana is becoming legal in states, which right. probably, so that, that probably isn't caps, the drug of choice right, for that the dark caps, web. That kneecaps yeah. uh, all of that. So that's an, an, another angle. Plus that's... we learned that you buy illegal guns on WhatsApp now, not on the dark web. Right, right? exactly. And then that, that's a perfect <laughs> example of, of the point that this research is, is getting to. It's that the dark web isn't this like boogeyman necessarily like there, there are very very legitimate sites out there on the dark web as well i mean so what else is on the dark web i've never been on um 55,000 websites or onion domains whatever that means well Seems a lot of really these onion big. domains are there for censorship purposes too i mean that's why tor was created to have this uh, anonymity software and to be able to get around uh, the censorship on the internet that happens in countries yeah. like China. So if you're in China, you can read the New York Times on the dark web without any of the censorship that goes on in China, the way that China censors Google or points its users toward, um, you know, Chinese-affiliated, state-affiliated media, or, I mean, and China's not the only country that does that. I mean, there's a bunch of other countries out there that sort of censor the internet as well. So there are a bunch of news sites out there that you can read. I mean, I would imagine that that's probably Can I read CyberScoop than... on... Um, no, we do not have an Onion site. That is the one thing that I will not say. But you can read the CIA. That was another uh, piece of news that happened this week. The CIA has an Onion site now, which I find interesting on its own right. Just because well, it's like, why would you want to read the CIA on so the Onion can, website? Well, like, you might be able to report something right. on that website that you wouldn't want to do. Sure. Um, yeah. So, look, it, it, there's a lot that could be built up in terms of getting around censorship, that it's not just yeah. all, hey, I want, um, you know, a, a clean weapon or I want some ecstasy or something like that. I'm still taken away that I can buy weapons and drugs there and that's only use for it. But, <laughs> but think about it too. One of the points is that like there are a lot of people that get paid to monitor the dark web as well. So you're going on these forums and if you, you let's say you were a complete like criminal and badass, you would buy these weapons. Law enforcement and private security teams are going to be all over you. Like you're almost better off trying to do it on WhatsApp than you right. would be yeah. Um, trying to do it on the dark web because you're going to get caught. Right. Like, that's just what's going to happen. So well, There goes my weekend plans. <laughs> <laughs> and plus, you can't turn um, the TV on now without seeing an ad for um, some credit card company or insurance company right. that's going to check the dark web to make every, sure yeah, your right. security number Everybody's not watching. It's not uh, a threat. Continue your, your internet usage. So it's not cool anymore. Right. <laughs> <laughs> if it ever was. Russian hacker Andrei Kobakov is scheduled to be extradited from Spain to the U.S., where he faces 26 criminal charges related to his alleged involvement in the Fin7 hacking group. Fin7 stole some 15 million credit cards from businesses in 46 states, and Kobakov is accused of directing much of the organization's activities, overseeing a team of subordinates who stole victims' payment information from places like Chipotle and Saxon Avenue. Greg, how do you see this playing out? Um... This is one of the big groups that the government is really, really focused on taking out completely. Fin7 has wreaked havoc. Yeah. Um, like you said, think about all those retail companies. There are a lot of others. Um, Chipotle, you mentioned, but like Red Robin, Sonic Drive-In, Whole Foods. I remember there was uh, a small burger chain in the Northwest U.S. I, I completely forget their name. I've I've never been up to the Northwest, but I know that they're popular up there. Um, they're they're wreaking havoc. So the government definitely wants to try to um, rid them uh, off the internet. But the, these groups use the use malware that is just out there, and these financial groups get together and they continue to go after companies like these three guys, including the one that is set to be extradited. Um, 
like to say that they're not the masterminds behind it, even though the evidence points to them being masterminds. But since they've they're left... They're not going to admit to it. Right. They're not going to admit to it, but since they've left, like other people have just filled right in and gone, okay, we'll take this malware and we'll just keep uh, doing what they're, what they're doing. So I, I think I've said this before on prior podcasts that this is sort of a whack-a-mole thing, but this is a, a really big thing for the government to show that, okay, we're trying to go after these guys and the extradition is our greatest weapon and we're going to continue using that no matter where they are in the world to pull them in and put them through the American justice system. What's the cost of a credit card these days? I think that it can be anywhere, just one credit card. I, mean, I always thought it was like pennies at this Yeah, point. it's about a, a nickel, I yeah. guess. So we're not talking about even like a big profit margin here. No, uh, I, I mean the the real problem here is for the companies covering themselves to make sure that they don't lose their their own assets, and also that now they don't run into GDPR issues as well because it might not be just necessarily credit card numbers. It could be information that these guys yeah. are after too because they like to take all this information and then go after other sites for credential stuffing or identity theft or, I mean, all of that gets wrapped up into these compliance laws that are coming online and it's really the companies that bear the brunt. Yeah, personally, if your credit card number uh, was out there, sure, you run the risk of identity theft, but there's so many protections built in to the financial systems and, and the offerings and the products that we use that you're okay. You're okay. If you're a little bit knowledgeable about it, you're okay. Um, but it's these companies, it's the bigger corporations that need to really watch out and are really, really right. interested yeah. in seeing these guys taken off the internet by the government. So thieves have stolen more than $40 million worth of Bitcoin from Binance, one of the world's largest cryptocurrency exchanges, as part of a large-scale security incident affecting roughly 2% of the company's Bitcoin holdings. Hackers stole two-factor authentication keys, API data, and potentially other info through an attack that combined phishing and viruses, the company said earlier this week. The result was a withdrawal of 7,000 Bitcoin, which was worth nearly $41 million at the time of the heist, from Binance's hot wallet just when the time was right. No other user funds were affected by the breach. Jen, is there anything at this point that would convince you to get involved in crypto? I mean, absolutely not. So... Tell me, does does Binance um, guarantee the Bitcoin? So are these people going to get their $41 million back? So I don't think that it was necessarily taken from user accounts. It was just like their reserves. So the the same way a bank just might have just a pile of cash that's just there for whatever they want to use it for. So it's just gone. So, yeah, it's it's just gone. Like they will – I think I saw some people talking about this where they'll be back in like to where they were before this happened in like six to eight weeks. But at the same time, there are so many stories like this where it's just whoops, whoopsie, okay, uh, there there goes all of this. Well, I've had all, all kinds of Bitcoin. yeah. I've had all kinds mm-hmm. of friends tell me about being ransomware for their Bitcoin, um, their Bitcoin just being flat out stolen, and there's no really recourse. I. So never would think of putting anything more than a hundred bucks into it just to watch the markets move. Um, otherwise, and and that was a long time ago. Now I just I don't care. Like I I just don't care. Sure. Yeah. I, I really think. And and it's funny when Bitcoin first came on the scene. I guess in like 2013 is when I first like started thinking about it and and then seeing it pop up in the news. I was like, how is this anything but money laundering? <laughs> like, how, That's going to be the primary purpose for this. And lo and behold, here we are in we 2019 are. Yep. throwing that it just is a, a, a criminal enterprise used to move money and launder money. And that's really the primary use for it. And anybody that looks at it any other way, I just think is wasting their time. So a former NSA analyst has been charged and arrested for illegally obtaining classified national defense information, including files on drone warfare and disclosing it to a reporter. The charges, which were filed originally in March of this year in federal court in Alexandria, Virginia, included obtaining, retaining, transmitting, and causing the communication of national defense information, disclosure of classified communications, intelligence information, and theft of government property. Department of Justice unsealed the charges against the former analyst, Daniel Hale of Tennessee, Thursday. 
Greg, what are the underlying story here? So it looks like the reporter, if you read through the indictment and do a little bit of research off the information in the indictment, it looks like the reporter matches up with uh, Jeremy Scahill of The Intercept. And this looks like it was used to write uh, some really, really interesting journalism that they published on the way that the government uh, uses drones to support its military operations. Um, So The Intercept just really has been under the gun when it comes to the leakers that the government has charged. Reality Winner was another one that leaked right to The Intercept. And while... Not to get into a media navel-gazing thing, there was a lot talked about in terms of protecting sources when it came to Reality Winner. But for Daniel Hale, uh, it it was really, really interesting to see that the operational security, the OPSEC here, wasn't great because he started researching Scahill from uh, his work computer, which was obviously being logged and show that he was researching times to meet up with Scahill because Scahill was making a bunch of public appearances in D.C. So um, just, you know, if you're going to do this type of stuff, you need to be careful, especially why would you even start, if you're even thinking about doing something like that, I can't wrap my head around thinking that you wouldn't be logged if you're doing it on a work computer, especially if you're an NSA analyst. Like You shouldn't be doing it at all. Well, uh, we, that, that, and that's an entirely different conversation. <laughs> but at the same time, like the NSA is, is going smart. to log your be stuff smarter, of, yeah. of, of any government agency. Like this isn't the EPA. It's not the IT systems at the EPA. You're talking about the NSA. They know a thing or two about insider threats, especially like (laughs) we know why they know that. Um, The Intercept's a big reason on why uh, they know how to watch for insider threats. So when you make it easy for them, things like this happen. So um, it is really, really interesting to see how the government is just coming down harder and harder and harder on people that are – disclosing this information. And look, I will say, as uh, a journalist, if somebody came to me in the same way that they went to Scahill, I would take that information too. I know that you, Jen, are against that type of stuff, I but I'm, I'm like, that. that's the job. That's the job that uh, well. I signed up for. So I, um, like, I would never turn around and be like, yeah, you, I, I can't but have you this. You're also, breaking the law. Like, yeah. I would want to be able to protect them. But at the same time, it, the source is going to be negligent in how they go about disseminating that information. Like, there's not a lot that you can do, and you're, you're going to end up uh, in a federal indictment. I mean, as a reporter, you don't have an obligation to the NSA to keep their secrets safe. Um, but if uh, as an employee, I have that obligation and I should not be disclosing anything. Like I, I oh, decided I totally to get have the a logic career, behind it. Right, right, right. right? No, I, I mean, totally a, get the logic behind it's it. It's a different thing. I get so. the logic behind it and I get also get the logic behind somebody sitting inside one of these government agencies, whether it's Snowden or Winner or whatever and saying, okay, the narrative that's being pushed by the government isn't exactly the one that I'm seeing on a day-to-day basis and nobody's covering it and I think it needs to be out there. Like I, I, I can wrap my head around the way that 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 germinates and we get Snowdens and Hales and reality winners and, and stuff like that. But no, I, I get what you're talking about. If you're an employee, like this is what you signed up for like hey that that that's the the battle at hand here with with what has been going on but uh, again i just go back to the point that dude just flip on incognito browser <laughs> like if you're gonna if, if, if even if you were thinking about doing this stuff like what don't do it on a work computer like to me that just seems like maybe i'm being the dumb one maybe i'm being naive like i i, I just I, I don't understand why you would. I mean, common sense the, tells you the, not to use a work computer to do things you're not supposed to do at work. Right. 
So um, I, I'm sure that this will not be the last case because this is something obviously the government – I think this is what, the third case in like 18 months? Because uh, there was another one. There, they prosecuted somebody that was on a congressional staff for leaking stuff to a New York Times reporter as well. So the knives are out. So you got to be careful. Just don't do it. And if you do, send it to Gray. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, so 71% of the data breaches that occurred in the last year were financially motivated, according to Verizon's annual data breach investigations report. While there's been an uptick in espionage targeting the manufacturing sector, the overwhelming majority of cybercrime still is carried out by hackers primarily interested in just making a buck. Just ask the financial companies because for the first time this year, they reported more instances of fraud when a physical card was not used than when a card was present. Jen, when is it not about the money with, with hackers? I mean, I assume there's people out there that just want to make a name for themselves. They just want to be like the coolest hacker. Around, yeah, but you know, the, but yeah, it's it, it eventually, yeah, money. yeah. I mean, if you're a criminal, that's why you're doing this. It's that's you know the old adage. What is it? Um, why do criminals rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Like, <laughs> of, of course, like that's what it's always been about. Sure. Um, but no, the DBIR was uh, really really interesting, and I always love shout out to the authors of the DBIR because look, there's a lot of marketing that we read in this job, and that's essentially what uh, the DBIR is as well. But it's written so well that it's actually a fun read. As somebody that reads a lot of this marketing stuff and tends to glaze over sure. a lot of it, yeah. this is it's actually funny. It's act- and it's got a little bit of attitude and snark in it as well. So okay. if you haven't read the DBIR, uh, check it out. I know it can be a little long, but the salient parts are actually very, very well done. So shout out to Verizon for having some good writers on staff when it I'm comes to this stuff. Actually shocked by the shout out. So a federal grand jury has indicted a Chinese national for being part of an extremely sophisticated hacking group that breached U.S. businesses, including the seminal 2015 hack of health insurer Anthem that exposed personal information on nearly 79 million people. The Anthem breach compromised sensitive personal data, including Social Security numbers, and prompted a record $16 million settlement with the U.S. government over potential health insurance Portability and Accountability Act HIPAA violations. The indictment, unsealed in a federal court in Indianapolis, where Anthem is headquartered, outlines how the defendants allegedly infiltrated their targets. They went after employees of the victim organizations with spear phishing emails, which were used to install backdoor tools for remote access to networks. After locating the information they wanted to steal, hackers allegedly extracted the data by bundling and encrypted files and then routing the data through multiple computers back to China. So, Greg, since when is spear phishing considered sophisticated? Yeah, that's the most interesting part here is that the DOJ called the spear phishing sophisticated. Spear phishing is not sophisticated. Not at not all. Not at all. But I think what is sophisticated here, and I'm sure if you looked at the technical data, is the way that they bundled the data in the encrypted files and then sent the routing or sent the data through the routing through multiple computers, basically bounced it around the internet because they didn't want to leave a a direct trail on going from point A to point B and pointing back to their targets. So some obfuscation there that was really, really interesting, and I'm guessing that was the sophisticated part, at least I hope, because spear phishing emails, never sophisticated. Sophisticated gets thrown around way, way too much in terms of hackers and nation states and, and, and the way they carry out their operations when a lot of it is just a really, really simple stuff that can be avoided if everybody paid attention to cyber hygiene. So, um, yeah, the spear phishing, not sophisticated. Maybe the, the routing of the data, but let's hope that's what the DOJ was getting at. It's a big settlement. So a ton of news, obviously, that we just got through, but there was also a good amount of funding announced this week. So let's get to it. First off, Coalition, a San Francisco-based cybersecurity insurance company, raised $40 million in funding, led by Ribbit Capital, was joined by investors including Green Oaks Capital and Hill House Capital. Evident ID, an Atlanta-based online identity verification platform, raised $20 million in Series B funding coming from Aspect Ventures, NEA, Blue Cloud Ventures, and ISS founder Tom Noonan. 
MedCrypt, a San Diego-based medical device security startup, raised $5.3 million in Series A funding. Section 32, Y Combinator, and ENIAC Ventures gave some money there. And the biggest one that we saw this week, Exabeam, a California-based behavioral-based security intelligence platform, raised $75 million in Series E. Sapphire and Lightspeed Venture co-led the round. Jen, what do you think of what went on? Lots of money flying around this week. I think um, certainly what we haven't figured out yet is identity verification management for the internet and for any of our devices. So it's it's interesting to see um, a company at Series B funding for that. Um, hopefully that indicates that they're doing well, not just that they're um, trying to grow a little bit more. Um, you know, MedCrypt, again, I think no one's really solving the medical device issue um, that's going on right now. Um, you know, but why Combinator being sort of the funder there isn't, doesn't sort of make me excited that this is, you know, the best of the best. Why is that? Um, just a, just because, one, the lack of cybersecurity focus um, and I think understanding of that market. You know, I think a Y Combinator is um, certainly producing unicorns, um, but I think of it more as um, sort of your more social unicorns. Um, you know, I think a company that looks more like an Uber or... Um, a LinkedIn, the or super like super that, popular is, tech firms, right? right. Is, it's gonna is gonna look more like something why combinators are really good at, right? They're tied to all those really big companies for the help, for the mentorship, for the funding. Um, you know, cybersecurity is not not their lane, um, and so um, you know, I'll love to have their money, um, and and great that you went through probably went through the program. I actually don't know if they did. Um, you know, it's it's not the same to me as if, um, you know, a great cybersecurity venture capital firm um, identified them and, and, and took them through um, a process. Yeah, the, the MedCrypt stuff is really, really interesting based on the fact that I believe there was a story in Wired recently that talked about insulin pumps made mm-hmm. by Medtronic and basically that people are still trying to get a certain type of pump that has been shown clear that it can be hacked, but they're using the hack as an advantage because there's no other way to like upgrade the other pumps or like yeah. the pumps work so well that the hack actually did the opposite. You know, there's that saying among techs, it's not a feature, it's a bug. This was a bug that got flipped into a feature and the hack actually, I, I believe, allows people to to use the insulin pump better than any of the other ones. But that that just goes to show that like there's so much opportunity in the medical device cybersecurity space that I'm actually surprised that we're not seeing more money dumped into companies like MedCrypt because we're talking about people's lives here. So um, actually, insulin yeah. pumps and pacemakers and any of the other biotech stuff you know, that we're talking about in terms of actual medical devices, like, hey, all that stuff's going to need to be protected too. So let's dump our money into that. Well, I just think we're not seeing enough startups in this space. I think it's it's harder um, than your traditional cybersecurity company because you need to have that expertise um, in being HIPAA compliant in um, medical devices. I mean, you have to understand so much more um, when it comes to being this type of startup. Yeah, uh, really, really interesting space. And um, hey, uh, obviously there's the the money there at least a little bit right now to uh, keep it going. So um, yeah, really, really interesting company there in MedCrypt. All right, now to our interview with Jeff Stone, uh, the associate editor of CyberScoop. Jeff has been uh, covering, among other things, uh, the noise around uh, ad fraud. We did a story last week that showed the amount of money is actually down when it comes to ad fraud, but that number going down dropped from like $6 billion to $5 billion, which is just still an astronomical number. So Jeff did a deep dive into actually how ad fraud is proliferating and what makes it so lucrative, and we're going to talk to him about it. But first... Uh, to tell you about an event that is going on in New York. We've been talking a lot about uh, New York Cyber Week, but hey, we're not the only event on the block. 
May 16th, next week, join key decision makers, investors, and innovators to network, learn, and develop new partnerships at the Cyber Investing Summit in New York City. This unique conference explores the financial opportunities and trends in the cybersecurity sector, and you can connect with CISOs, attract funding, and increase brand awareness. We will be there. I will be there. Jeff will be there. So come check us out. And for more information, check out cyberinvestingsummit.com. Okay, joining us now, Jeff Stone, Associate Editor for CyberScoop. Jeff, thanks for hopping aboard. Yes, thanks for having me. So you've been on the ad fraud beat for CyberScoop, and you published something on Friday that goes a little bit deeper into the practice. Um, Something I'm really interested in, I've got two investments in this space, um, one specifically targeting um, ad fraud and the other bad bots. So tell us more about your story. Yes, uh, uh, thank you. We... Uh, published a big story on on Friday uh, that uh, that essentially looks into this whole phenomenon. Right, there's billions of dollars that are being spent uh, every year when it comes to advertising, and you know, as anyone who's on the internet knows, that if you're spending money online, you are a target for scammers. Um, and when it comes to ad companies, uh, there is a big ongoing criminal case, and there's a lot of research coming out that indicates. Uh, ad companies don't always know uh, where that money is going. So um, essentially what's happening here is scammers have embedded themselves throughout this entire complicated ecosystem, uh, and they are taking a lot off the top. Remind us how much money it is we're talking about. Juniper Research says the number is close to $20 billion now, set to double within a couple years. But to be honest, nobody seems to really have a firm handle on it. Did I see um, uh, that the number slightly went down this year? That's correct. There is a, a research report that came out last week from White Ops and the Association of National Advertisers saying that the number was at $6 billion last year, or I'm sorry, $6.8 billion last year. Uh, it's now down by about a billion dollars. Um, but uh, again, nobody seems to have a firm handle on this. And White Ops told me that the, the, the reason that number might be down is because um, these scammers are essentially changing the techniques that, that they're using to steal money. They're kind of uh, going through a reset right now as some of the security technology catches up to their tactics. So let's talk about the different schemes and techniques. Uh, I know there's ad spoofing and pixel stuffing. Uh, Tell us a little more about how these schemes operate. Right. When it comes to um, pixel stuffing, for instance, they will amplify the number of people who view their ads by hiding ads in pictures on uh, otherwise legitimate websites. Spoofing involves um, scammers essentially manipulating the real-time Uh, ad bidding process so that if you are an advertiser and you think you are purchasing ad space on Facebook or Google or the New York Times or ESPN, you spend your money and then you find out um, that you've actually purchased space on kind of a garbage low rent page and you've lost a lot of money doing that. So that's spoofing. One of the big ways that this is happening though is... um, Invalid traffic and cyber criminals selling uh, access to botnets that provide invalid traffic to legitimate publishers, uh, which really complicates things. So lay out for us how that scam generally works. Explain to us how these criminals are manipulating human behavior to inflate numbers and then pull the money out of the system. These these scammers will. Um, there's a whole cyber criminal ecosystem that goes into this. When uh, you receive a phishing email, for instance, uh, as millions of people do every day, uh, you click on the link and instead of maybe stealing your financial information or your username and password, um, what these scammers do is kind of take control of your computer when they want. They might be activating browsers in the background of your, your screen without your knowledge and kind of using that to Uh, visit junk websites, or click on advertisements. Now, they're able to scale this because um, they're exploiting customers who really are on 
um, their own personal computers. And by using real humans, they're able to kind of camouflage themselves within that human behavior because anti-fraud technology um, stops traffic that is obviously fake by checking their IP address and verifying um, whether or not they have cookies on their computer, for instance. So connections without cookies are automatically denied because it's clearly fake. But if you're using a real computer in a botnet, then you're actually using someone's um, digital footprint uh, against them. So um, I thought I read that, you know, as many as nine companies are sort of involved um, with the ad before it gets in front of eyeballs. What are those companies? How does this like actually work from beginning to end? Right. One of, one of the reasons that, that ad fraud is so successful is because, like you mentioned, there are so many companies involved in um, bringing an ad from A to B. There's just a lot of middlemen, and with every step, provides an opportunity for scammers to get involved. We're talking about companies that provide like affiliate marketing or ad exchanges, um, website monetization services, and all kinds of different publishers. And all these companies, when it comes to something like a real-time auction that is trying to serve you an ad based on your location, uh, based on your mobile phone, uh, these companies are competing against each other, and some of them are just not real. Uh, so there's also not a lot of uh, security or third-party vetting that goes into that process. Yeah, I was going to ask, have you gotten any sort of idea on the companies that are in this space and that are everywhere along this chain? Do they even care about the security ramifications that go into this type of stuff? Um, I think they care more now. Um, if you take a close look, if you're an advertiser and you are, are taking a close look at um, the way some of this business is conducted, you might see your budget shrink, which is a challenge. Um, when it comes to publishers, publishers, for instance, uh, as anyone who has paid attention to the media landscape over the past 20 years knows, are desperate for engaged human um readers and an audience. So what they're trying to do is um, boost their traffic, sometimes by purchasing it, and then selling that access to advertisers. Um, but of course, there's only a finite number of human readers in the world. So in order to continue growing your audience, or apparently growing your audience, you need to invest in um, these bots and they often don't realize that if you go um, down the line when it comes to purchasing traffic that a lot of it is just not real. So obviously the big tech players like Google and Facebook are caught in the middle of this. How do they handle how they affect this ecosystem? Google does not like this as you can probably guess. They're mad. Um, when they filed for their initial public offering back in 2004, they had to write a letter to the Securities and Exchange Commission um, announcing the potential problems for shareholders. One of them, of course, was fraud. Uh, they said, look, if, if people cease to trust the online advertising ecosystem, then that's going to negatively hurt our profitability and it's going to hurt our brand reputation. Um, fast forward, you know, more than 10 years later, uh, they are giving out refunds to marketers who are still dealing with invalid traffic. And um, it's enough that Google has at least 100 people working on it, they told me. I mean, they essentially said that this is an existential threat to their business that they are constantly trying to get a handle on. It seems like, you know, they're working on this, but more bots seem to be surfacing. Um, there's another another one found earlier this year, right? Yes, that's right. Uh, CenturyLink released uh, a, a really interesting report um, about a botnet called The Moon, which um, is kind of a big deal because there was a big takedown toward the end of last year around some of these botnets, but The Moon actually, whew, right on time, provides a new layer of sophistication. Uh, essentially what this botnet can do is... Um, send 
nearly 20,000 URL requests to thousands of domains in, in just a matter of hours, which is a big deal because whoever's behind this is using it for ad fraud and they're renting it out to other people who are also using it to carry out um, brute force attacks and all, all kinds of different cybercrime. Uh, the reason it matters that this is continuing to develop because it is because based on what we've seen in the past, um, there's also a lot of malware that develops alongside these botnets to uh, expand their reach and, and keep the money coming in. So how does this tie back to the even meth bot cases? You've been working on that for a while and tell us how this all fits into that. Right. So Eve and Methbot were two um, separate but related advertising fraud schemes that were taken down um, toward the end of last year by the United States and uh, different international law enforcement agencies. Google was involved. White Ops was involved. There was a number of companies. Um, it was essentially the most sophisticated ad fraud operation that uh, is known to have existed so far. Certainly the largest takedown of one. Um, they used uh, 1.7 million, I believe it was, hacked computers to visit fake websites that they essentially created for exactly this purpose, um, drove fake traffic to those fake websites, and then charged real marketers to sell ads on those websites, which, again, were junk. Um, so they made, uh, they worked together a little bit, but they Altogether, they made over $30 million between um, 2014 and uh, the end of last year. And it's important, again, because it provides a little bit of insight into how these groups work. They're situated all over the world, um, and they share traffic with each other, and they share tips and insight on how to um, secure their infrastructure to avoid essentially getting caught and uh, revealing themselves as, as malicious actors. Meanwhile, the bots that they're using are uh, able, to, able to make their own mouse clicks autonomously and scroll through pages. And um, they click on a lot of ads, but the way that they disguise themselves is to not click on too many because it would be obvious, for instance, that uh, it's not a real person because nobody wants to do that. So how do I know if somebody is taking over my browser and is clicking through ads? Good question. What they're trying to figure out now is um, how exactly to do that, right? It's, it's fascinating because uh, the whole promise and premise behind digital marketing is that, look, we can quantify all this stuff and, and we know more about people than ever, but there's still not a single way to do that. Security researchers told me that um, you essentially wouldn't know if, if someone has taken over your computer to, to use it for a bot purposes. It's an invisible window. Um, it might uh, drain your battery power or um, heat up your fan at times when you might not expect it. But otherwise, you have to rely on antivirus companies when you can. But doesn't like a Google kind of know... I mean, they're, they're getting my IP address. They kind of know what I'm into, right? I mean, it's like I have obvious patterns. There's like five brands I probably like. Um, there's probably five or six topics I'm interested in. And if I'm really outside my lane, um, wouldn't like a Google sort of be flagging, you know, why is she looking at, I don't know, I'll take the hobby of our guest last week, arm wrestling. Why is she looking at um, ads about arm wrestling competitions or whatever? Yes, um, you would think so and certainly hope so. Um, Google is reluctant to talk about this. I should say that's because they don't want to um, tip their hand, of course, to indicate to these scammers how their security and anti-fraud technology works. By all accounts, Google does have some of the best anti-fraud technology out there. But again, um, scammers have developed a way to essentially use your um, pattern and online personality and your cookies to use that as proof that someone is real rather than um, an indication that maybe you're going outside your, your typical lanes of interest. Jeff, can you explain ads.txt and explain how that has thrown a wrench 
into the way that these botnets operate? Ads.txt is essentially the big push among the advertising industry um, that has awoken to this issue and is trying to solve it. What it does is provides a protocol for identifying who you're doing business with, essentially. So bottom line, are things going to get better or worse in the short term? They're probably going to get worse. Uh, Nobody seems to know exactly how much it costs uh, this problem of ad fraud, and there's not really much evidence that it's going to stop. Uh, We mentioned the report from White Ops and ANA from uh, last week indicating this is down by by about a billion dollars, but even White Ops says, look... um, this is it's good that this is down for now, but what we want to know is if this is kind of a blip or if this is going to continue. It's too early to say. And um, when it comes to emerging botnets like the moon, they are already taking advantage of emerging technology like streaming video ads uh, and mobile technology. So it's changing. I wouldn't say it's getting better yet. Okay. Jeff, we end every interview with a random question. And though, even though you're not a, a standard interview, you're on staff here, you're still liable to answer it. So I will ask you, you're, <laughs> you're, good. you're, based, in, right. you're based in New York. Um, I want to hear uh, your favorite food spot in New York. Oh, yeah. But, oh, man. That's not a simple question. My favorite food spot is the Halal Guys. Uh, it's a food truck just outside of, uh, just south of Central Park. I think it's on 57th, certainly on 6th Avenue. Uh, $8 for a chicken platter with rice and lettuce and the hottest hot sauce I've ever had and really fatty white sauce. It's my, it's my favorite. So when we're um, there for New York Cyber Week, like I feel like you need to produce a list of the best best place to get a bagel, best place to get a slice of pizza, best place for whatever it is um, that we're craving. Nothing would make me happier. And that's crazy that you said Halal Guys because I believe Halal Guys actually has a presence in D.C. So whenever you're down here craving it, we can go try to track them down and uh, fire it up. So I definitely want it. Uh, I'm embarrassed to admit this. I know that halal guys, and I know exactly where it is, but it's not the same. It's not wow. as good as having to stand outside and suffer in the cold and in the rain uh, for your street. Uh, hey, look, <laughs> any way that New York beats DC, that's a long way. And <laughs> right. um, we can just add it to it at that point. So, Jeff, thanks for hopping aboard. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. All right. Thanks again to Jeff for showing us how ad fraud is proliferating and we'll be back again next week normal type of show normal type of interview as always stay curious 